Well, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 21. This morning we'll be covering verses 15 through 25 um, as we wrap up our series in John's Gospel after some 14 plus months on this, uh, in this book. And I'm so thankful for the way that, that God used this book in my own life as I've uh, been studying it. As I mentioned to you, I think as we started, I never preached through the Gospel of John. And uh, it was so amazing to me that the way that John brings together all of these allusions and, and types and illustrations, references in the Old Testament, and shows how they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, one footnote, because someone asked me about this uh, just a few days ago. I had to skip John chapter 17 um, as, the, as we started to make plans for and transition to uh, this online gathering and talk about the coronavirus. So I will go back sometime uh, in 2020 and finish John chapter 17, but uh, next week, uh, well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a new series on the Ten Commandments, uh, Handwritten by God is the name of it. So, uh, But this morning, we're in the 21st chapter of John, and as many of you know and are experiencing, of course, it's uh, the frustrations run higher when you are cooped up and you are sequestered and you can't get into your rather regular rhythms and you can't have those quiet times, and so I know uh, that many of you are probably experiencing what we're experiencing in our home, and that is a greater degree of irritability, and I'm sure that I am the, the worst culprit, um, a lack of patience with one another at times. Um, you know, overall, we've really enjoyed this, this time in terms of uh, being with our children more and more lunches together and more dinners together and more practical conversations together, more spiritual discussions than ever, so Overall, it's been, it's been amazing, um, but, you know, of course, things are heightened when you're so close together. One of the things that I've noticed is, I don't know if it's a new phenomenon, or maybe it's just because I have three teenagers in my house, but since we're all together, I, my kids feel like if we've answered a question, if we've, if we've answered one of their questions, or they've answered one of our questions, rather, about anything, then that's sufficient. They don't need to answer it again. So I may say something like, Hey, what's your work schedule this week? And I'll get, remember, I told you that on Tuesday. Or I'll say, have you gotten any information about who your roommate's going to be in college next year? And I'll get, Dad, you asked me that question a week ago. As if I'm supposed to remember every question that I've asked. They seem to be slightly annoyed by getting the same question uh, repeatedly. Well, in the passage we're in this morning, Jesus will ask Peter the same question three straight times, and he does so for a reason. We're going to see that reason this morning. We're going to see three words of Jesus that are directly applicable to leaders in the church. So there's a part of this passage that is really directly for pastors and leaders, but of course the application is broader than that. So we're going to do something a little different this week. We'll have three points but each point will have an A and a B. And the A will be how this passage applies directly to leaders in the church. And then the B will be how it applies to all believers. So let me just read the whole section and we will discuss it. Uh, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. The word of the Lord reads this way. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. 
He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he said to him, or Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. After saying this, he said to them, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. And he said, Lord, what is it uh, that is going to, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that to him, that he was not going to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So you may recall uh, from last week that seven of the disciples are with Jesus on the Sea of Tiberias. And uh, after a, a long night at sea, they just enjoyed this delicious breakfast that was prepared uh, by Jesus on a charcoal, uh, over charcoal. Um, so they know, we know it was delicious because he's the creator of the universe, and so uh, he knows what he's doing when he makes things. And after breakfast, Jesus pulls Peter aside and he asks him, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, this is an odd question. In fact, it almost seems to be unnecessarily provocative. Why would Jesus make this a love contest? Remember, the disciples have already argued before about who was the greatest and who would be the greatest in the kingdom and who would sit closest to Jesus and so on. And so they don't really need any fuel as it relates to competition. And yet now Jesus seems to be stoking that flame when he asked Peter, Do you love me more than these? And how is that measured anyway? How, how does a person know if they love someone else more than someone else loves them? Why would Jesus do that? Well, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's taking Peter back, in Peter's mind, to the audacious claims that Peter made about himself concerning Jesus. Peter has been bold, he's been impetuous, he's been impatient, and even comparative in the way that he's talked about himself related to the other disciples. For example, when Jesus tells the disciples during his last meal with them that they're going to betray him and leave him, he says, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter says, no way, not me. Even though all these other guys will fall away, I will never. Now, if you're one of the other guys, You've got to be thinking, like, dude, why do you need to bring me into this? Why are you bringing us into this? Just speak for yourself. But Peter compares himself there to the other disciples. And, of course, we know what happened. Almost immediately, Peter would deny Jesus three times, even through cursing. Now, likewise, not long before that, when Jesus tells the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and, and he implies to, to the disciples that it's going to be, there's going to be this terrible, brutal death that he's going to suffer 
Peter says, no, this will never happen to you. He says, this will never happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus calls Peter Satan, which has to be memorable. It has to be hurtful. seems like every time that Peter tries to separate himself from the other disciples, he ends up failing spectacularly. To put it bluntly, Peter's not been a very good leader. He has botched it so many times that he's developing a reputation. And when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Jesus is bringing back to Peter's mind all the ways that Peter has pledged to stand out and yet has failed. Even so, it is to Peter that Jesus will issue this command that we'll look at in a moment. Feed my sheep. It was Peter that Jesus appoints as a sort of first among equals among the disciples. The one that Jesus calls the rock. Peter blows it more than any of the other disciples, denying Jesus, correcting Jesus, cutting off people's ears, arguing with anyone and everyone. And yet he will be given the incredible pastoral responsibility to lead the leaders of the early church. Now here's the first point I want to make. This is point 1A. Perfection is not a prerequisite for pastoral ministry. Rather, what's required is a recognition of the constant need for grace. If perfection were required, there would be no pastors, there would be no leaders, there would be no ministers at all. It's not perfection that Jesus requires, but the humble recognition of our imperfection. As pastors and elders, we should be the chief repenters. We should be the first to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. And and I'm so thankful that I'm surrounded by other pastors and elders who who demonstrate that level of humility, who have that self-awareness. Yeah, we are all sinful people. We need to be eager to confess and to seek the forgiveness of others. The pastor should be the first to say, I'm sorry, I blew it. And that can only happen in a church. It can only happen in a ministry where the pastors are trusting in the gospel for their own identity, for their own self-worth, for their own joy. When the pastors and the congregation realize and regularly hear that their righteousness is in Christ, not in themselves, It actually frees them to be vulnerable, to be open, to be transparent. Only when the beautiful doctrine, we could actually say the principal doctrine of the the Christian faith, justification by faith alone, is preached and believed and celebrating, can we then stop with the blame shifting and the pretending and the covering up and the self-justifying and all of those things and actually be honest about our own weaknesses. It's essential. Uh, that pastors are humble and trusting in the gospel. And, of course, this applies to us. If you are in Christ, you are righteous before God at this very moment. Christ's righteousness is yours, which means you don't have to pretend to have it all together. You are deeply loved as you are, sins and all. God knows the very worst about you, and he loves you still. You don't have to prove anything to anyone. That's true of every believer, of course, even the pastor. Now, here's how this applies more broadly, the second part of point one. Jesus' trust in Peter 
is a demonstration that God works through broken vessels to accomplish His great purposes. So, you know, we do a survey through the Bible and we see from the very beginning that, that, that the people that God uses are very broken people. You go back and you look at Abraham, who was a liar, who was an idol worshiper when God called him, and he was a deceiver. And then Moses was a very angry man who was a murderer, who, who didn't really have great skills at oration. Right? Jacob was a conniver, a liar, a deceiver. David, David was an adulterer and a murderer. And, so, and, you know, the list goes on. We've talked about this uh, before. You may feel like, for you, maybe you feel like you are ill-equipped, Maybe you feel like you have just a, a past that's unlike anyone else's. Maybe you feel untrained. You feel lacking of confidence. You feel like you're so worried that someone's going to ask a question that you don't know the answer to. You may not feel like you'll ever be effective in sharing the gospel or encouraging someone in their faith. If that's the way you feel, then you are ripe to be used by the God of the universe. The witness of the Scriptures is this. God uses broken vessels to carry out His purposes because the reality is that's all that there are are broken vessels. Okay, now what about this question that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Notice what He doesn't ask Peter. He doesn't say to Peter, have you done your homework? He doesn't say to Peter, do you feel ready? He doesn't say to Peter, do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? He doesn't say to Peter, have you been praying enough lately? He says, do you love me? Now, sometimes preachers make a big deal about the Greek words that appear in this passage. So the first two times that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He uses the, a Greek word from a form of uh, agapao. You may have heard of the word agape. So basically the first two times he says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you agape me? And then the third time he uses a, a Greek word that's it's from the word phileo, phile, uh, philia, and he says, Peter, do you filia me? Do you love me in that way? And there's some who, who, who make the argument that because of the differences in the words that Jesus has, is actually lessening the requirement. He's saying, do you truly love me? Do you truly love me? Okay, well, do you at least love me then? And that's really not the case at all. Uh, the problem with this is that throughout John's gospel, John actually uses those words, uh, agapao and phileo, interchangeably. In John 3, in John 5, in John 11, the overwhelming consensus among biblical scholars is that these two, two Greek words are practically synonyms. So for us to, uh, to make a big deal about which word was used is, is what Don Carson calls the, the exegetical fallacy of, of, of a word stutter, using the words uh, wrongly. What Peter's saying is simply, or Jesus is saying, Peter, am I uttermost in your affections? Do you treasure me? Do you delight in me? Is your love for me your greatest love, because if it's not, you're not the right person to feed my sheep. Now, here's why, and this is our second point, again, mainly for church leaders. A minister cannot love the flock of God unless he first loves Jesus. There's no way for a pastor to love the church that God has called him to serve unless his love preeminently is for Jesus. Now, it takes more than love to be an effective minister, right? But it cannot take less than love. And I'm all for advanced theological training. I'm all for the equipping of ministers. Actually, I think it's essential. I'll be starting myself a doctoral program 
uh, later this summer, early fall, that I'll work on slowly over the next four years and occasionally going to Philadelphia for a week at a time. So I'm all for advanced theological training, the study of language and history and hermeneutics and preaching and all those things, but formal education does not make a good pastor. A pastor must love his church, and he cannot do that unless he first loves Jesus. If the pastor doesn't love Jesus, he will not love the church because the church will let down the pastors and the pastors will let down the church. The church will disappoint the pastors and the pastors will disappoint the church. And if the pastors locate their identity in the approval of the members of the church rather than in Jesus' steadfast love for them, they will be on the roller coaster of their lives. I don't know why I thought about this, what prompted this, but I was doing something the other day, and I, and I remembered a scenario that I encountered, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, there was a situation in my ministry where within one week, uh, one eight-day span, really, there were two guys who were frustrated with me. They weren't friends. They barely knew each other. They were frustrated with me in a direction that we were going as a church, and so they went to the elders separately. Again, with a span of a one week, and one guy said to the elders, he said, John is a great preacher, but he's not a very good shepherd. And there was another guy, again, within one week who said to the elders, John is a great shepherd, but he's not a very good preacher. Now, if my ministry identity was wrapped up in their approval of me, I was in a totally no-win situation. But two things helped me in that. First of all, the elders completely had my back in that regard. They were supportive, and they, they gently corrected uh, these young men. Uh, or they weren't really young men, these men. And the other part was that I was neither really pumped up about the praise nor destroyed by the criticism. Uh, Unless, as pastors, we know where we stand before God because of Jesus, we will be a constant wreck. But if we know where we stand in Christ and therefore love Jesus, we will be able to love the church, the ones that God has entrusted to us. Uh, Commenting on this verse, John Calvin writes, No man, therefore, will steadily persevere in the discharge of this office unless the love of Christ shall reign in his heart in such a manner that, forgetful of himself and devoting himself entirely to Christ, he overcomes every obstacle. And and speaking of forgetting himself, this is really evident in Peter's response. Peter knows that Jesus knows his heart, and so he doesn't say, uh, he doesn't say, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. There's no, uh, he, doesn't say, um, he doesn't say, you know that I love you more than these other guys. He doesn't have that sort of bravado. Um, he just says, you know that I love you. He leaves it at that. He doesn't try sort of faux humility and say, Lord, you know that I don't love you as much as these other guys do. You know I don't love you that way. He is humble and trusting He's at the end of his rope. Every brash statement has come back to bite him. And now his heart is laid bare before the Lord. He's forgotten about himself. He's not going to compare himself to others, favorably or unfavorably for that matter. He just says, Lord, you know, you know, and that's what matters. Again, he loves Jesus, and that will be the reason that Jesus trusts him with the task. A pastor must love Jesus or he cannot love the church. And again, I think... There are broader implications here for the whole congregation. Here's a second part of uh, our second point. As Christians, 
our love for our leaders and one another is anchored in and fueled by our love for Jesus. The broader application, I think, is easy to see. If our identity is wrapped up in what other people think of us, then we will forever be on this project of of preserving our self-image, making sure that we look a certain way. And I was so devastated to see just yesterday afternoon that uh, Darren Patrick, a well-known pastor who planted churches in St. Louis, uh, was killed by what what was called a self-inflicted gunshot wound. I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know if it was suicide or just an accident. But I went back and I, as I was reading some of the articles, one of the things that stood out to me was Darren Patrick was a really well-known sort of celebrity pastor who had a huge, very uh, uh, well-known fall morally. And uh, he said that one of the things that happened was he said, I became so obsessed with preserving my own image on social media and preaching, whatever, he said, that I no longer love people. He said, I no longer develop friendships with people. And if, if we become consumed about preserving our own image or making sure that we, have, that we put out this certain uh, persona, then we no longer love people. We become absolutely obsessed with our, you know, looking at ourselves and how are we doing and how do other people perceive us. Now, I want to consider the task that Jesus gives Peter. He says in verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend to my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Now, again, there are those who want to make this actually several different commands, but most agree that Jesus is giving Peter one task, but reiterating it in in several different ways, or a couple different ways. And that task is to ensure God's people, by way of God's revelation, that Jesus is God, that He is their brother, their Savior, their leader, and their friend. New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes this, Feed means, mainly, give these little ones committed to one's charge the nurturing knowledge that Jesus loves them by means of serious gospel education in Jesus' basic benefactions and teachings. In other words, the role of the shepherd, the under-shepherd, who comes under Christ as the chief shepherd, is to feed the church Christ, to dispense the good news of the gospel. Now, it's interesting to me that this command actually precedes the Great Commission, which is not to diminish, of course, the importance of reaching people where they are and sending people, but evangelism can only be effective as God's people are equipped in the gospel. Pastors, again, not to diminish the importance of pastors reaching out, but they can only be effective reaching out by reaching inward to the flock. It seems that what Jesus is saying is the most effective way to reach the nations is to faithfully feed the flock of God so that they are equipped and strengthened and mobilized themselves by the gospel so that they then can go and scatter to a lost world and share this good news that they themselves have received. Here's the point for pastors and leaders, our third point. The single most important responsibility of every pastor is to nourish the flock of God by feeding them the gospel of God. When I say gospel, of course, I'm not not saying, uh, I don't mean by that just the salvation message. I'm talking about the vast incredible, expansive, and beautiful plan of God to redeem a broken and sin-cursed world 
through the person and work of his son. As you've heard me say before, the role of the pastor, the primary role, is to proclaim the whole counsel of God of which Jesus is the subject, the object, and the hero. Consequently, the role of the pulpit ministry is to dispense Christ via the story of redemption that's actually realized in Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and impending return. Now, I have to say this. The gospel, of course, is not everything that the pastor feeds the flock, but it is central. The gospel is not the only food, but it is the main course. Yes, there will be instruction, and there will be wisdom, and there will be guidance, and there will even be correction at times. But what God's people need most is hope, Christ-centered hope, good news in a world of bad news. And as pastors, amid all the temptations to entertain and to be cool and to motivate and inspire and all of those things that we are tempted to do, we have one central obligation to the flock, and that is to give them the gospel, to feed the flock the gospel, as we ourselves, as pastors and leaders, take in the gospel, dwell in the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves. Now, what is the application for the entire church? Here's our final point, 3B. A faithful church receives the gospel as what it is, the good news that saves, sanctifies, and transforms. If the single overarching goal of the pastor is to feed the flock of God, the gospel of God, then the single overarching goal of the congregation is to feast on the gospel as it is delivered. Now, the challenges, of course, to pastoral ministry are many, and I know I'm not saying it's a harder job than other jobs necessarily. People have hard jobs. They work hard. I praise God for this church, the way that people are faithful in, in working and serving the church and giving. But one of the challenges that never stops in pastoral ministry is to proclaim and, and distribute the gospel among many other competitors. And what I mean by that, I'm not talking about other religions. I'm talking about other ideologies, other philosophies, other purported answers to the problems that plague us. I'm talking about other distractions. If I can borrow a, a thought from C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters, the devil would like nothing more than for the, for the congregation than for them to demand something more than the gospel. Give us the gospel and something else. There's a restaurant that we frequent here, uh, we frequent in Madison, and of course right now you can only get food there by takeout, but every time I call, so I, I always, the same lady, maybe she's the full-time uh, phone answer or order taker, but I get the same lady, and whatever I say, I'll say, get, I'll say I'd like some of this, and she says, and what else? I'll say, okay, give me, give me some of this, and what else? It's like, before I can finish my sentence, she's saying, and what else? There are churches that have gotten to this place where when Christ is proclaimed and the beauty and sufficiency of the gospel is, is proclaimed, they say, okay, and what else? They want something else. Give us something that motivates us. Give us something that's more practical. Give us something that I can take to my work with me or whatever it is. Now, don't get me wrong. The gospel applies to every aspect of our person, 
our soul, our mind, and so on. But people who come to the church, come to church, gather together looking for secrets and steps and treasures and ways, all the practical ways to get their lives in order, what they're asking for is food that never nourishes. Certainly, as I mentioned before, the Bible has instructions and wisdom and guidance, but all of those things flow out of the gospel. You take the wisdom literature. Yeah, the Bible has much to say about how to live wisely, but even those instructions flow out of Christ, who not only gives us wisdom, but is himself the true wisdom of God. We've encountered folks in John's gospel who want something different, something more We saw them in John chapter 6. They said, yeah, but give us something more. And they're the ones who abandoned Jesus. Unmoved, untransformed, unsatisfied, still exhausted and hopeless. The only thing that can change us, that can heal our marriages, that can transform our communities, that can bring about revival in our areas, is not what God tells us to do, but what God tells us that's been done. The real, historical, transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a church that receives the gospel becomes a beacon of hope in a lost and hurting world. And one of the things that the gospel does is the gospel creates a a gospel culture. A culture in which the members of the church, including the leaders, are resting so deeply in Christ and His righteousness that they understand that justification is by faith, not by our works, not by our own obedience. And so people, again, are free with each other to be open and honest and candid and vulnerable. Ray Ortland, retired pastor in Nashville area, writes this, The gospel does more than renew us personally within. The doctrines of grace also create a culture of grace called a healthy church where the gospel is articulated at the level of doctrine and incarnated at the level of culture and vibe and ethos and feel and relationships and community. it That is, the gospel creates a culture of acceptance and warmth and beauty and safety. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 15 where he says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Of course, it doesn't mean that in the church that there's not correction at times. It doesn't mean that we don't exhort one another at times. It doesn't mean that that in the church there aren't times when discipline is needed. All those things are true. But a church that understands the gospel is a church that welcomes others without expecting them to be perfect, without expecting them to act or look a certain way, but welcoming those uh, eagerly and gladly because we have been welcomed eagerly and gladly by Christ. For eight years in California, Janine and I led a small group at our house on Sunday late afternoons, and we would have dinner together, and then we'd go through a study together, and it was it just developed some really sweet friendships. Well, on one occasion, Janine was walking with a lady that she walked with every once in a while, and the lady said, hey, do you have any room in, for, your, for us in your small group? Janine said, you know, we really don't, unfortunately. We're, we're beyond sort of mass capacity. Actually, we need to launch another group very soon. We, we literally have no more room. And then Janine asked the lady, she said, wait a second, now aren't you in a small group already? And the lady said, yeah, but we can't stand going anymore. And Janine said, well, really, why? She said, well, three of the marriages in our group are in crisis mode. In one of them, the husband was recently unfaithful. And yet no one ever talks about any of that stuff. 
When we pray, we pray for dog surgeries and distant relatives. And the lady said, it just seems so fake. It's not something I want to be a part of. This is an example of a culture, or at least a small group, that hasn't seen the gospel gain traction. And in that sort of culture, pastors must pretend to be perfect, along with everyone else. And the church is not a place where pastors or anyone else actually bear witness to Jesus as being a friend of sinners. And frankly, people won't come to that church. Pastors won't last very long at that church. But in a church where the congregation feasts on the gospel and receives it as the good news that it is and rests in the finished work of Christ, there is a warmth and there is an openness and there is a humility and there is a mutual affection. And people outside of the church say, what is going on with those people? The way they love each other, the way they forgive each other, the way they long to be with one another. Now, the early church, of course, had to feast on the gospel or they wouldn't have survived. Persecution uh, was rampant. They were seeing their leaders killed. In many cases, they themselves were losing everything, becoming, as the same Peter would write in his first letter, strangers in a strange land. And Peter and John would need to depend on the gospel as well. We don't have time to get into the rest of this section, but Peter would be killed, as Jesus uh, alludes to. John would be exiled, and yet they continue to trust in all they had seen and heard and witnessed and believed about Jesus. Their hope was in the gospel, and it enabled them to persevere amid trials. It enabled them to love one another deeply. It enabled them to handle conflict. And the same is true for us. We will thrive in our spiritual lives only as we believe and trust in the gospel. Only as we are fed the gospel from our pastors and leaders and only as we receive the gospel for what it is. The only good news that can transform communities and homes and marriages and churches and the world. Praise God for His grace and His gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for this incredible gospel, the gospel of John, and thank you for the good news that the gospel of John features and reveals. And Father, we ask this morning that you would impress that good news upon our hearts. We ask that you would enable us to believe it at the soul level, that Christ's work on the cross was enough, that when Jesus said, it is finished, it was indeed finished. Everything that was necessary for our salvation was fully accomplished. Father, help us to trust in it. And because we trust in it, give us the grace to be open and honest and candid and transparent with others. Help us to receive others who are imperfect and flawed and faulty because we know that we ourselves are imperfect and flawed and faulty but we have been forgiven in Christ. Have mercy on us, we pray. Minister to us by your Spirit even now in Christ's name. Amen.